Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Native Americans were a staple of early television shows, consistently presented as good guy assistants to white authority figures. Michael Ray Fitzgerald reviews this as part of his book, Native Americans on Network TV, Stereotypes, Myths, and the Good Indian. The book was published in 2013 by Roman and Littlefield. Michael talks to me about how Native Americans transitioned to be presented always as good, but seldom in charge. We discuss a number of television shows and movies that aptly illustrate this. Welcome to Michael Ray Fitzgerald. Hi, Michael. Thanks for talking to me. Hello, Joel. Nice talking to you, too. Unfortunately, we know that Native Americans were portrayed in a variety of ways in literature and film, but you chose to review their portrayals on television. Given the importance of the Western and similar genres, particularly in the early TV days, this review was very useful. I found it to be very interesting and informative. But let's start, though, with some background. What is your educational and writing experience? I've got a bachelor's in print journalism. I've got a master's in mass communication, and I've got a doctoral degree in film and television history. And... uh, Based on the acknowledgments, it looks like this book is based on some of your educational work. What led to your study of Native American portrayals on TV? Cynthia's going to kill me for saying this, but it was my doctoral thesis. (laughs) Well, that's what I was saying. The introduction sort of makes it sort of clear that that's where this came from, and that's not unusual at all, so I don't think you need to apologize. I know. Okay. Yeah, it was my doctoral thesis, and I had the idea along with several other ideas, and I took it to England with me when I signed up for the doctoral program at uh, the College of, um, excuse me, at the uh, Department of Film Rating on Television at the University of Reading, and my, my thesis supervisor, Jonathan Bignall, asked me what I had, and I rattled off a few ideas, and when I hit on, you know, Native Americans on television, he said, oh, that's it, without a question. And, you know, he recognized that there was a big hole in the literature for that specifically. There's been uh, some other scholars have addressed Native Americans on television, but it's been folded into books about film. So there's, as far as we knew, there were no studies dedicated to television portrayals specifically. And apparently he was right because I haven't had any trouble getting this, um, you know, recognized for what it is. Yeah, I think you you mentioned it as part of your literature review, as part of the early part of the book, and there's no question that you were able to clearly show that movies or or general discussions of it 
might include television, but yours was the first. And given the importance of television, I think especially because of the way you set it up, going all the way back to you know starting with the beginnings of television, I think there's no question that uh, you definitely hit on a, a good topic as far as that's concerned. I have Jonathan. I have Jonathan to thank for that, really, because he, he's the one who recognized it as you know being uh, a, a unique position having a unique position in the literature. In the introduction, though, you dis- or not though, but you discuss the concept of stereotypes in detail. And in fact, obviously, that's your overall theme throughout the entire book is just the concept of stereotypes. Obviously, it's part of what you're trying to, to show. What were some of the historical mm-hmm. events and legends that contributed to the Native American stereotype? Oh, you would have to go back to the Spanish for that, I think, or you'd have to go back to Columbus. And, and there actually is a good book about Columbus's confrontation with the Arawak Indians in, in, the, in the Caribbean. And a lot of these stereotypes had, have remained unchanged since the 1500s, believe it or not. And in fact, that's kind of one of the themes of the book is how these stereotypes are unbelievably durable and just refuse to die and they're centuries old. Because yeah, uh, you mentioned um, going back to Pocahontas. Want specific example? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, older than that even. Older than that. Um, I, you know, I can't remember the specific Spanish ones, but yeah, Pocahontas is the quintessential you know, Anglophone stereotype, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Spanish had its equivalents, their equivalents. So, you know, Indians aren't, aren't allowed to be people that have to fit one or the other of the stereotypes depending on the political context of the text. And the evil Indian or the bloodthirsty savage, and that term was coined in 1700 in England, by Spencer Dryden in a play, the bloodthirsty savage went obsolete right before World War II. It was banned from films. And so that's why television is so loaded with the good Indian stereotype, which existed before that. But the evil Indian stereotype was banned because of political expediency during World War II. The U.S. The State Department did not want the United States to be perceived as celebrating genocide when that's supposedly, ostensibly, what we were fighting for in Europe was to eliminate genocide. So the U.S. didn't want Hollywood to appear to glorify genocide with movies about mass killings of Indians. So the State Department effectively worked to ban these. And I don't know if you know this, but the State Department is in control of foreign export licenses of all films, so they were in a position to do that. Yeah, because you, you talk about, in fact, that's somewhat of the theme of the, of the way the book works, partly because since you were dealing with television, television started to, do, you know, real television, commercial television developed after World War II. So it was coming right, right out of that. And you didn't period. have the coaxial cable. Right. You didn't have the coaxial cable to 1951, I think. Right, so you had to depend on uh, two or three, sometimes four broadcast channels, and that was pretty much it. And so uh, it was the end of, of 
television, you know, World War II when this finally came along, almost exactly as soon as the war ended. Did the development of television particularly change the stereotype concept based on some of the things that you had seen, you, you had noticed during the war as far as how Native Americans were portrayed? Well, the good Indian stereotype had always existed. Angela Awadi proved that. She demonstrated that in a couple of her books. Um, it's always been there. But um, you also had the bloodthirsty Indian stereotype, but it was essentially banned uh, at the outbreak of World War II. And then, as you say, television came along after World War II. So the only, pretty much the only stereotype you're going to see on network television is going to be the good Indian, a la Tonto. Um, you will see a few um, bad Indians here and there, but not very many, and probably the most places you would see bad Indians on television would be in reruns of old movies. So the shows that you talk about in, in the book, are you, you present them basically chronologically, which logically makes sense. Um, where, how did you decide to choose specific examples? I mean, obviously, you, I'm sure there were others out there that you looked at, but why these particular ones that you felt were the best to look at? That's a good question. I had several factors. It, it had to be network TV because I'm working on cultivation theory that, you know, the more often people see this in their living rooms, the more influence that these things have. And they also had to be... Um, a central character in the series. And um, also, um, so when I looked, when I did a survey of the central characters, every single one of them was what Cedric Clark called an enforcer, a regulator or an enforcer. Every single one of them were enforcers without an exception. And so I had a, a clear cut theme at this point. I was going to call this Enter the Regulator, but the publisher didn't like the title. <laughs> so you started with the Lone Ranger, which is logical, given yeah. the Lone Ranger was around for quite a while, even before television, obviously, through other media. Um, and also... Oh, we right. could, it goes back to radio. Right. And I think... So that's why... And, of course, there were serials. There were Lone Ranger serials, too, I think, in the movies. Um, how did Tonto, as an example... Really, what are some of the things about Tonto that really bolstered your stereotype argument? Well, Tonto's just the male version of Pocahontas, and if you look at the early um, the early episodes of The Lone Ranger, Tonto is more or less the Lone Ranger's wife. He waits, or manservant. He waits on the Lone Ranger. He washes his clothes for him. He nurses him back to health. He is very feminized in a lot of ways. But also, on the other hand, he's very much like Jack Benny's manservant, Rochester. But I still contend that all of these characters that I feature that I look at in depth. They're all Tonto, and those are all basically based on Pocahontas. And Did you want to know why I think that? Sure. <laughs> that's, is that your question? Yeah, that was, I, guess, I guess that's, like you say, Tonto is, is such a good example, and that's why it made sense you started. But how, how does he compare 
it, you know, where do we come up with this concept that he's Pocahontas? Yeah, he's the Pocahontas is the template, the, the prototype of this character, even though she's female. In fact, some interesting things that I ran into is that uh, supposedly, I can't remember what scholar said that Harriet Beecher Stowe based Uncle Tom on Pocahontas. She's the mother of all stereotypes. <laughs> of all, you know, subaltern stereotypes in the Western Hemisphere. So you really have to go back to um, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank here. Who wrote Friday, man, Friday was... Oh, um, Daniel Defoe. Robinson Crusoe. Daniel Defoe. You, you really have to go back to Daniel Defoe here. And even then, you got to go back to Dryden before him. But they're just not... They're all essentially the same. They, they help the white man. They're pretty much either servants or junior partners in the enterprise of control of winning the West. And the, even the current ones are junior partners in enforcing Euro-American norms and the, and the law. And it's, inter- it's really interesting here where I go back to Cedric Clark, who now uh, go, goes by the name of um, Syed uh, Khatib, changed his name. He came up with four stages of stereotypes in the U.S. And um, it's odd because one of the stages was called non-recognition, and this is when the, when the minority character is not even recognized. And, you know, he worked for George Gerbner. He worked on some studies. He was a, a, a research assistant for George Gerbner at, uh, you know, in Annenberg in um, School of Communications in the um, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And he had the idea of non-recognition before Gerbner and Gross came up with the term symbolic annihilation, and they're the same concept. And I'm not saying that Gerbner borrowed the idea from Clark, but he had access to it. And Clark's four stages went like this. One was non-recognition, where the minority figure doesn't even exist. Symbolic annihilation. The second stage that I focus on in my book is called, he calls it regulation, where wherein the minority characters have to earn their place in um, basically a white society. Mm-hmm. In whatever the dominant group decides, they have to prove their loyalty. And if you look at Tonto, he does this over and over and over, and he can never do it enough. And all of these characters in my book are constantly proving their loyalty to the dominant culture. And that's the only thing that makes them acceptable. And I think Clark was way ahead of everybody on this. And he helped me with this book. He, he and I conferred on this a number of times. The, the, this concept of the regulator, like you mentioned, um, that that's the way that, that they have to be portrayed to be acceptable is the way you put it. Yeah. I, I think we've seen that. We see that in other minorities as well, but I think in particular with the examples you gave, there's no question, I think, of even somebody like Cato from, you know, uh, the Green Hornet and Cato. Yeah. It's the same concept. Cato's, you know, is acceptable 
even though he barely speaks English, even though he's he's Asian and in a period of time that that might make a difference, but he's a helping the Green Lantern, right? Green Hornet, yeah, and it's a Green that, Hornet, excuse me. <laughs> that's fine. So therefore, he fits exactly into that same mold of he's the, he's the helper, even though he's a minority that might not necessarily. So he's presented the exact same way. Exactly, and Clark's window was my opening into this concept because he says he thought it could probably work for any minority. So I did a my pilot to this was a paper I wrote in grad school testing his hypothesis to see if it would work on Native Americans because his specialty was African Americans. I wanted to try it out on Native Americans. I came up with a sample size of 278, and, and the, his accuracy was in the 90 percentile range, maybe more, maybe greater. So the stereotype we're talking about then for these other, that sort of fits other groups as well, it's almost, it's the same concept of, of it, one way or the other, there's no middle ground. That's what I meant when I said that um, Beecher Stowe probably right. based Uncle Tom on Pocahontas. It's the same mechanism, if you follow what I'm saying. Right. the same uh, storyline. The concept that the only way the minority is going to be accepted is because they're 100% innocent or good. Obedient, subservient, loyal, and loyal. Don't forget Gone with the Wind is about nothing right. except the slave's loyalty. Right. In fact, the only bad people, quote unquote, in the in the uh, in Uncle in Gone with the Wind are other white people. Right. So you've got that good minority going on there, and it. I can't say I understand it, but he Clark definitely has got something there. In the 1950s, you've got a number of your series that you talked about besides uh, Lone Ranger. Were there things related to other aspects of the time and the period that affected how these portrayals were done? Um, for example, you mentioned oh, yeah. uh, Broken Arrow and then also some one of the chapters you call it Son of Tonto. So what, how did the era affect how these, you know, that period of time is such a unbelievable era when you consider all the politics and other social things that are going on in the 50s, especially, and of course, television, if not mirrors, it certainly uh, shows a lot of it. So how did these series particularly portray that period? Well, it was the Cold War. Right. Um, the Russians, and then to some extent the French, were intent on embarrassing the U.S. by exposing its racism. And so every time there was a racial incident, in the U.S., the Russian uh, papers, you know, would go off on it, and the French papers, too. And the U.S. is being embarrassed in the world, you know, dreadfully in the world arena. Oh, so the U.S. was working very, very hard to counter this. And don't forget, NBC is owned by RCA, at the time, which was a government-created cartel. And the executives at RCA and the government were like a, a, a revolving door. Lyndon Johnson himself, by the way, was a broadcaster, a member of the NAB, and he would get on the phone and tell the people at NBC and CBS and Frank Stanton, who was one of his best friends, he would get on the phone and tell them what he wanted. And so would the other presidents. They would do a lot of their, you know, direct directives, issue the directives all over the telephone. And although we supposedly have a free media in this country, it was certainly guided and steered by the executive branch in an effort to counter the Russian ridicule that was being heaped on the U.S. 
And the reason for this, which is discussed at length in um, Mary Dudziak's book and, uh, and Borstelman and Lawrence, I believe it's Lawrence Borstelman, was the UN. The, U, the U.S. is trying to win votes in the U.N. among post-colonial countries in Africa and Asia, and the Russians were going to them and saying, why do you want to vote alongside the U.S.? This is a racist country that committed genocide on American Indians and African Americans. And so the only way the U.S. could counter that propaganda, and, and of course it was accurate propaganda to some extent, was, was counter-propaganda to making it seem that the U.S. was very, very good to American Indians, which, it, which we all know is not true. But if you look at these series that you just discussed, discussed and, and mentioned, Broken Arrow, Law of the Plainsman, Lone Ranger, it, seems, it rewrites history to make it seem that the U.S. Army was very supportive of Indians. The massacres were, did not, like Sand Creek and et cetera, never actually happened. It was, a, it was an opportunity to rewrite history in a Cold War context. Were there aspects related also? You mentioned uh, the Cold War aspect. What about, were there aspects of them related to other things besides the fact that the Russians could use it in, as, uh, as a way to, you know, to try to counteract the Russians? Were, there, were, there, were we trying to use it also as a way to to work against or to show civil rights or lack thereof, or was it re- any relation to that as well, the civil rights movement? Absolutely. It was basically a statement of that, that we don't mistreat minorities in this country, be they American Indians or African Americans. It was basically, and, and this was discussed between Hollywood executives, and you know, Hollywood was producing all of these series on film. Uh, two of them you mentioned were produced by 20th Century Fox, in 19, and, and this was discussed by Eisenhower's Psychological Strategy Board. Daryl Zanuck went to Eisenhower's Psycho- Psychological Strategy Board meeting and volunteered to, quote, unquote, make any kind of propaganda the government wants. I have this in writing. I have the notes of the actual meeting. Yeah. It's interesting. For, I mean, one of the things that I... When reading your book compared to some of the other books I've written, I've read, read, excuse me, read, there is this flowing concept throughout this entire period that where we believed that Hollywood wasn't that involved in politics during the early part and only really got involved in what we call the TV age of politics. Uh, it's not true. There was a large amount of no, <clears throat> constant back and forth, and, poli- and, and the political people were affected by Hollywood and vice versa. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's son was in the movie business. He took a he took a fifty thousand dollar loan from the the vice chairman of Twentieth Century Fox to try to Joseph Skank to try to skank out of trouble with keep him out of prison. This is a con. There's been a conduit between Hollywood and the look at um. Louis B. Mayer, he helped Herbert Hoover get elected. He was, he was the head of the California Republican Committee to help Hoover get elected. Hoover owed him umpteen political favors. There's always been a pipe of, of an open hotline between Hollywood and Washington. 
So now then, going into, as we get through the 50s and into the 60s, the next series you mentioned is Daniel Boone. And I remember the series vaguely. I was never much of a Western fan. I don't know if you can even categorize it that way. But, but Daniel Boone is, of course, based on a real person, as opposed to some of these other, which were, I mean, obviously the Lone Ranger and some of the other characters are uh, fictional. But Daniel Boone was a real very person. Loosely, very loosely. Right. Very loosely based on Daniel Boone was really a Quaker, and Daniel Boone didn't want to... Daniel... The Kentucky legislature in 1964 passed, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, it wasn't a, a law. A resolution? A legislation, but yeah, condemning the series for its historical inaccuracies. It, it was more or less, a, it was the most Disney-ish uh, series that was never produced by Disney. It was 20th Century Fox, again. Right. right. That's right. Disney was doing Davy Crockett. That's right. <laughs> I remember there was a Disney series at the same time, but you're right. That was Davy Crockett. Yes, and 20th Century Fox, if I'm not mistaken, was Disney's original distributor. So, you know, there's, it's a very incestuous relationship here. And as I told you, Zanuck uh, was very, very um, influential person in the government. He hired a lot of government people to work. Or he hired one of the top um, generals uh, to, in NATO to work for him as a consultant. He, he was personal friends with Richard Nixon. He was on General Eisenhower's staff in, in, in Tunisia. Did there, were there other aspects of, these, of the 60s shows that were the same way as the 50s and that they reflected the time period? Yeah, I would say the 60s in this sense was just a continuation of the 50s. Remember what was happening in 1955 when uh, Broken Arrow hit, I think it was, maybe it was maybe 56, but you had Brown versus the Board of Education. You had the, um, the fiasco in Little Rock. Uh, you know, the government wanted to make it seem like it was doing something to counter the, uh, these racist governors of, of these southern states. When in actuality the government didn't really do much if anything but pay lip service to civil rights. Even Eisenhower himself wasn't particularly involved in civil rights. But so what the government did, you know, was they passed laws that were, you know, laxly enforced and they encouraged Hollywood to make propaganda that made it seem like something was being done and very little was being done. And certainly Indians were subject, American Indians were subject to a massive amount of ill treatment in the 50s and 60s in terms of their lands being exploited for uranium, for nuclear weapons. It was one of, it was a very bad period for American Indians. And there was a Republican assault on uh, the residents on the sovereign status of about a hundred Indian nations. They called it termination. It was a, it was a bill in Congress to terminate these um, nations to stop treat the treaties that the U.S. had with these nations. This was in the 1950s, so it was a crucial era for American Indians and for black people. One of the things I found interesting, though, is then after you get past Daniel Boone, 
the remainder of the series, you talk about our modern-day series as opposed to the other ones which were all in the past, so to speak, to a large extent. And probably, mm-hmm. I can't imagine why today how anybody would have ever green-lighted a series like Hawk, in which the main character who was supposed to be uh, uh, an Iroquois is played by Burt Reynolds. Yeah, and the funny thing is it was that that show was partly developed by... Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. The guy who wrote um, the movie, a real left-wing writer who wrote um, the movie, I think it must have been Broken Arrow. I can't remember what movie. It was a real famous left-wing writer. One of the, I think he was one of the Hollywood Ten. It's been a while since I dealt with this material. But... Um, mm, I'm sorry, I got lost there. Burt Reynolds as an American in as an There you Indian. go. It's it's almost yeah, it's almost like they wrote the Indian angle in after it was finished. It, I mean, there's almost nothing Indian about this character. There's absolutely nothing Indian about this character except he has a snowshoe on the wall of his bedroom. There's nothing Indian about the guy whatsoever. Uh, he makes two remarks that I've seen in the whole series about being an Indian, and they're both self-mocking. One was, he says, I come from a long line of losers. And another one was that he was an Indian scout, which is basically the, the regulated concept in, in another saying. Is, um, he makes two remarks about being an Indian, and they're both self-disparaging. I really don't think that, I don't even understand why they made the character in Iroquois, except maybe that he had played an Indian on Gunsmoke, a half-Indian, half-breed, quote-unquote. And it's also interesting that he has a partner who's black. <laughs> and so it's yeah, like they're trying to Wayne hit, Grice. they're trying to hit both uh, minorities in the same way, by, you know, almost two with one way. And look at the hierarchy there. Uh, Reynolds is uh, Hawk's boss is white, and Hawk's assistant is black. It's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> I'm not saying it's deliberate, but it's kind of unfortunate. Right. I mean, 1966. It's probably not. It's an interesting concept that there's a hierarchy set up, and even within minorities, and uh, the black uh, minorities <laughs> all the way down at the bottom. Yeah, and I- interestingly, uh, Wayne Grice was. Um, a follower of Malcolm X's, and he got shot the same day. He got shot in the same volley that got Malcolm X, the actor who played the, the black detective. Um, th- that movie, that show is is a joke, and it's, I'm not surprised it only lasted one season. It didn't have any redeeming qualities whatsoever, and the the Indianness of the character was almost impossible to find, even when you're scouring it with a microscope, which I did. That 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 series was ridiculous. Of course, then Hollywood or your television said, "Let's do another one." And so, less than ten years later, we had another Native American police officer, and you'll have to pronounce—is it Nakia or I don't even know how to pronounce the. Yeah, it was Nakia. It right. was Nakia, and it, guess what? It was the same company. Columbia Pictures, who produced both series. Yeah, and it was a long tax spell. There were no American, Native American characters, recurring Native American characters between Hawk and Nakia. I think that was a matter of about seven, I think. 
yeah, it was from the Hawks went off in 66, Nakia appeared in 74, so eight years. There weren't any Nakia, any uh, Indian characters that I know of. And there, again, Nakia is another Indian detective, only this time he's on the um, reservation. He's in Navajo. And I think it's never explicitly portrayed, but I think he's supposed to be half Indian and half Euro-American. It's certainly, this series makes more sense if you look at it that way. It was, um, and the, the actor who played Nakia, Robert... Robert Forster. Help me. Forster. Robert Forster has, has green eyes, so... It, 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 the series works better if you look at him as a quote-unquote half-breed. Because the whole thing, the, the, the pilot is, is about his struggle between two worlds, and he doesn't know which way to go. That series has a lot more integrity than Hawk, because it, 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 the guy is, he, at least he's, you know, he is an Indian, a Native American. He claims to be Navajo. He talks about Navajo rituals. They dis- they discuss them a lot on on the at least in the pilot. Now the, the weekly series was a different creature altogether, and so it's this is when we're moving to a period of diverse celebration of diversity. It's what Herman Gray calls multiculturalism. Pilot was in April, and the rest of the series showed up in September. Yeah, and the rest of the series was pretty unfortunate because. They dropped a lot of the Indian uh, issues and concerns. It just became basically a run-of-the-mill uh, cop series, much like um, the one. It was actually based on an earlier series that had a Mexican American in the place of a, a, a Native American. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of the series. It was the same producer. Even a couple of the actors were the same. It just, it, unfortunately, it went from being uh, like um, a multicultural celebration to just a standard cop show set in the West. What little they tried to do didn't really, wasn't of much of it in the end, didn't make much difference anyway as far as even the stereotype aspect because it's almost like they got rid of, this, they got rid of the fact that he was even Native American. Yeah, they kind of backpedaled, and, and the whole thing that made the pilot interesting they, they got rid of it. Uh, it's almost like the, 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 the network exec said, look, this isn't going to play in Peoria, so let's change it. And then they took everything interesting about it out of it. And, of course, it failed. Yeah, that's what I mean. It didn't last very long anyway. It only made it, I think, uh, to the end of the year or something, so it was very short-lived. By the way, I would like to say that I think Burt Reynolds' Indian heritage is somewhat questionable probably way overrated. That, that, that is right, that, that even though he's supposed to play full-blooded, he, he, there is a claim that he had some, he has some Indian blood, but you're right, that, there's no way of knowing exactly how much based on what anybody says. So it's, was it said mostly to try to counteract the fact that, that he was playing a full-blooded uh, Indian? Yeah, maybe a retroactive justification. Um, there's, you know, it's very popular for white people to claim Indian blood. Even, even Britney Spears claims to be part Cherokee, and it's usually Cherokee for some odd reason. And I've had a lot of discussions 
with Cherokee scholars about this. And as you know, Philip Deloria even wrote a book about it called um, Playing Indian. And for some reason, it's a real popular thing for white people to claim Indian heritage. Even my own family does this. So then, of course, your last series, which once again, we have a jump in this case, 20 years before the next series that you mentioned. And that's Walker, Texas Ranger. What was the Indian, what, what was the Native Americans' importance to that series? You know, Chuck Norris was instrumental in developing this. He, ha- he claims to be half Cherokee. He's supposedly half Cherokee on his mother's side and his father's side. I'm very skeptical of this. I checked the Cherokee, ro- the Kitua band roles and the United uh, Cherokee roles, and he's not on either of them. And the Cherokees themselves are very skeptical about his claim of being a Cherokee. And, uh, but he decided that he could play Cherokee characters in a couple of film roles and apparently or part Cherokee characters. And by the way, uh, um, Rambo was supposed to be part Cherokee. If you didn't know that. No, I didn't. Yeah. So, um, I spoke to the author and he did not intend that in his novel first blood. But in Rambo, First Blood Part Two, they made him part Cherokee. And the reason they make white characters part Cherokee is so when they go berserk, and there's even a term for this called berserking, when they go berserk, it can be blamed on their Native American side. So Walker, uh, claim, I mean, Norris claims to be half Cherokee. I'm extremely skeptical of this claim. I wouldn't have any problem telling him that to his face. And um, he just, he, he helped develop this character and he made him half Cherokee. And so the funny thing about it is Walker can become an Indian anytime he wants just by saying a few magical phrases or putting himself into a trance. The same way Clark Kent becomes Superman by going into a phone booth. It's utterly asinine, and it happens in several episodes where Walker, you know, puts himself in a trance, or he says a few, casts a spell with a few magic words, and he becomes a berserk Indian. And as you know, Indians are ostensibly more physical, better fighters, more in touch with nature, blah, blah, blah. That's true. I mean, it's the same kind of stereotype that you get with, with other races or other groups that they have their characteristics, and those always have to be emphasized as part of how they're portrayed. This one is completely different. Uh, it's kind of like Nakia in that he's a half-breed. And who was the other half-breed that, um, that was popular in the movies? Uh, Robert, the guy who played... He played a Navajo half-breed, Billy Jack. Billy Jack, yeah. Was a Navajo. And I, I apologize for using the term half-breed. It's a disparaging term, but that's, what, that's how it's used in the, in the text, in the youth film. They're yeah, called Tom Laughlin. Yeah. So uh, he was a, a, a half-breed. Uh, Nakia was a half-breed. What they've done is they've taken the... Both characters from Broken Arrow, the white character and his Indian alter ego, and they've combined, you combine them. 
you know, who tried to do this uh, in the early days uh, is um, James Fenimore Cooper. He tried to make Hawkeye with a white character more like Chingachgook. Is that how that's pronounced? I I don't really know how to pronounce that. Chingachgook? He tried to make them like each other and in, in, in mirror images of each other. And also another important half-read was Mingo on Daniel Boone, who was, whose father was the governor of the Virginia colony, and his mother was a Cherokee, and he had an Oxford education. So they've been wanting, letters have been wanting to combine the American Indian characters and the Euro-American characters into one for a long time. And Walker is the culmination of that. But you're right. In many ways, it's almost like he, the character is almost taken from Billy Jack because Billy Jack, unlike he's a Vietnam vet, and it's it, and still has the same. There's a lot of character uh, aspects that are similar, even though one was movies and the other was television. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, <laughs> Warner Brothers and Laughlin sued Ram sued. Uh, Rambo, no, they sued Nakia. They sued Columbia Pictures because they felt that the Nakia character was too close to uh, Billy Jack. And Rambo, again, is another Vietnam vet. He's a berserker, and he's half Indian. And this, this is all just so trite, isn't it? So hackneyed. That's the point. Billy Jack ends up becoming, gets arrested. You know, he, he ends up killing someone at the end of the film and gets arrested but partly because he uh, killed somebody, got out of control and killed somebody. Right, he has PS, PTSD from being in Vietnam, and that's the same device that was used in, in Rambo, First Blood. And, of course, in Rambo, First Blood, okay, he's a, he's, a, he's a berserk character and a dangerous character in the first movie, but in the second movie he's been rehabilitated, and now he's an enforcer or a regulator. And at the same time, they made him half Indian. So he's, he's, a, he's part monster, but he's our monster. Because in the first film, it's the same concept in that even though you're right, he's not, not considered Native American, doesn't have Native American blood in the first film, but it's still the same concept. He gets caught up in something that he has no control over and ends up uh, getting himself into trouble that he didn't bring on to him. He feels he didn't bring on to himself. Same as Billy Jack. Right. Billy Jack got caught in the middle of a, of a, of a rape or something like that, and, you know, he, he felt we had to intervene. So think about, think about maybe the pol- international political overtones in terms of intervention. Uh, I could go back to, I did some fascinating, I read some fascinating readings uh, about how Westerns were came along in the 50s, you know, they'd been around for a while, but they were revived during the Eisenhower era, because for one thing, Eisenhower was a huge fan of Western, but also because they suited themselves to interventionist politics. You know, the sheriff had to be the policeman of the world. I, I think, uh, I can't remember the guy, the author's name, but he read High Noon in terms of interventionist politics, and he just, and he made the analogy that uh, the sheriff character was, was, you know, Truman, and <laughs> the other three bad guys were Tito and Stalin and Mao. 
And if you read it in that context, you can see it. I can't remember the author's name. Stanley Corkin. Stanley Corkin. It's a brilliant observation. There's a lot of political overtones to Westerns and to these Indian characters. And the Indian characters can represent anything. They can be black people. They can be foreigners. They can be... I personally think that... Um, you, you, I could personally make a case that uh, Tonto stood in for, let's say, Vietnam. In what, in what way? He, Tonto, if you, the first episode of Lone Ranger, Tonto's family had been wiped out by bad Indians. So it could be the South Vietnamese. Of course, this is actually... Maybe a little too early for that, but it sure does fit the pattern. The bad Indians could be the North Vietnamese. Tonto could be the South Vietnamese. He's looking for the white man to to rescue him from the bad Indians, and and, and whereupon the white savior can say, "Well, they asked us to help them. We didn't just intervene for no reason. They asked us to come to come in and help." Could be. I mean, true. that even goes back to. The Philippines, doesn't it? Oh, and the Korean War, too. So that would even put it before Vietnam. But um, but it's still the same concept that supposedly being asked to help. Well, you know, there was trouble brewing in Vietnam from right. 1940. I mean, right after the war. Right. The U.S. was involved in Vietnam from 1945. I'm not saying the writers of, you know, maybe the writers of Lone Ranger didn't even know about Vietnam. But the, principle, the interventionist principle, I think, is clearly there, that we have to help these people before they destroy each other. So in all your review, did you ever see a Native American character in television who was treated fairly, that had a, an important role? Okay, in mean, fair, by fair, I'm going to assume you mean neutral. Right, that they're not going to be treated within that... that the, the, the dichotomy, good, bad, or in mo- most of our cases that we've talked about now, good only. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you see a bad Indian on television, uh, it's pretty rare because of the political uh, environment. But, um, yeah, on, um, I was shocked to see a couple of those on, on um, Unal Indians on Northern Exposure, there was a, 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 I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a a capitalist Indian, and he was a businessman. Uh, I'd have to look it up on IMDb. But um, he he was despicable, and he was venal, and he was greedy, and he he did not fit into any of the normal native stereotypes at all. In fact, uh, most of the Indians, on that show didn't fit in any native stereotypes, most of them. No, I guess that's a good thing, given that the only other Indian character I can think of off the top of my head was Hawk from Twin Peaks, and he was once again a good guy. So although he had a little bit more of he his own a, yeah. personality, it wasn't, he wasn't a hundred, they made him a real character as opposed to a, um, a caricature. Tommy Hawk, Tommy Hill. Right. Yeah. He, yeah, his nickname was Hawk. Yeah, Tommy Hill. He, um, but remember, he was a cop. But you're right. So again, we have an Indian having to prove his loyalty to the system, or what Clark called a regulator. Right. They always have to be ready. In his, in his view, regulators was anybody who worked 
primarily for the government, but not necessarily, but worked, you know, to enforce the status quo, meaning they had to be military or they had to be a school, yeah, a school teacher or they had to be, you know, a police officer. They had to prove they're on our side because apparently there's some question where the loyalty lies. lies. So did you, once you you finished this study, um, do you feel like this is a concept that's, you know, because we say we couldn't find any positives. These concepts of the regulator, is it still in existence in popular media today? Not just for Native Americans, but for... I don't think so. I, I, I'm not up on the most recent examples. The, the most recent one I have in my database is Longmire, mm-hmm. and those don't seem to be fit either of the two stereotypes we're talking about. Um, Jacob Nighthorse is a, a, an Indian politician, and you know he's neither good nor bad. He just does what he has to do, like any politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know of any other after that, but there is a new stereotype on, that's been brewing for the last few years, and uh, one scholar, I can't remember her name, calls it the Casino Indian now. Oh, yeah. Now there's the rich Indian, which was introduced on Northern Exposure, the rich Indian. I, I wish I could remember his name. I'll have to look it up. But the rich Indian is a relatively new stereotype. So I, I think... The phenomenon that I outline in my book it, it pretty much run its course, I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know what? It, 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 the, the thing is, Walter took it to such a ridiculous trajectory, on such a ridiculous trajectory that I think he destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's a good thing. Well, it is a good thing if yeah, we, we can finally get rid of this of the stereotype. So going forward, uh, what other projects, I mean, obviously this was, you know, as you've already pointed out, this was based on your doctoral thesis, uh, your doctoral uh, uh, work. They call, it, they call it a thesis in England. Yeah, they call it a thesis. Okay. Are you working on similar topics? Or are you going somewhere different with, your, with other work that you're doing now? Well, what I'm interested in right now is, demonstrate, and I, I just wrote something for a historical journal, film, radio, and television that was just recently accepted. I came, while I was doing this research, I came across some papers uh, demonstrating that uh, Daryl Zanuck was working hand-in-hand hand with the government to, get, to create any kind of propaganda the government wanted, and he also said, said in these meetings that FDR ordered you'd be surprised how many films. So apparently, the president has the ability to call up people in Hollywood and get whatever kind of movie he wants made, and this has been ongoing since the 30s. Uh, that's what I'm interested in right now, is, is, is demonstrating that we do not have... I, I wouldn't say we don't have a free media in this country, but it's certainly guided by um, government figures and government power. And that's understandable because you know, the media and the government are both, they're both invested in the military-industrial complex, and in, in some cases, the, the, the companies that are actually receiving defense uh, expenditures own, are the same companies that own film production studios and television production studios. So Hollywood is in bed with 
the government and the military and industrial complex. We've seen a number of examples of that in both film and TV, where, in fact, a film like Zero Dark Thirty was uh, criticized because the government was basically giving them classified information to help them write the script. Um, the FBI, oh, yeah. as a TV series, was another perfect example. It was sponsored by the FBI, and in fact, J. Edgar Hoover, it was one of his that greatest is. ideas that he really needed, this, he wanted this series out there, and of course, the FBI are perfect in that series. Bingo, and, and not only that, but he had the, he had the power to vet the script. He, he had approval over the script. Even had their symbol right at the beginning of each episode and at the end, and of course, we have the same thing with Dragnet, which are based on uh, actual cases, but of course, they've got information that were in the cases themselves. So, yes, I think I think you've got a lot of good examples where you can show that, uh, you know, either just from cooperation, the movies where the you know the government cooperated, whether it was the military or some other aspect of the government. Uh, there's a lot of examples of that and how those films and TV shows differed from those that didn't have government cooperation. There's a, there's a pretty big mine there to, uh, worth digging into. Yeah, maybe it sounds a little too paranoid for me to say that the government and the media are bad together. Maybe I should rephrase that and say that the government and the media have intersecting interests. I have to tell you, I really did enjoy the book a great deal. You presented... And you did a great synthesis of other work based on and then fit it into your own research. So I, I'm glad that uh, you took the time and I'm glad that it got published in a format that more people could read it. So, And I really want to thank you for talking to me. I know we went through a couple of back and forth to try to get the time worked out, but uh, it really was an enjoyable conversation for me. And thanks for your time. Hey, it was my pleasure and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Thanks to Michael for a great discussion. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.